I'm Chris. Hi, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers, a podcast devoted to all things horror. Well, horror and film at least. And horror adjacent. Horror adjacent. Yes. With a little glitter thrown in. <laughs> Today, we're covering Annabelle and Annabelle Creation, and we might just have a special guest with us. Might we? We might. Who is that special guest, Chris? Her name is... Hi, I'm Penelope. Penelope, who are you? Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> uh, Penelope is my sister. Sister in horror, sister in blood. That's uh, not creepy. Not at all. We knew that she was visiting, and uh, she told us some of her favorite horror movies, and so we thought it's the best time to talk about these two films. Annabelle is a 2014 supernatural horror film directed by John Leonetti, five-time cinematographer for James Wan, the creator of Saw, Insidious, and the Conjuring franchise overall. Annabelle Creation is a 2017 film directed by David Sandberg, acting as a prequel to 2014's Annabelle. Previously, David Sandberg directed 2016's Lights Out and is directing next year's big-budget DC film Shazam. Have you seen Lights Out? No, I haven't, and it's on my list. And uh, James Wan, isn't he also doing a DC film? It's Aquaman, right? Yeah, he's an Aquaman. Yeah, okay, Mm -hmm. whatever. The music for Annabelle was composed by longtime James Wan collaborator Joseph Bashara. The music for Annabelle Creation was composed by Benjamin Walfish, who actually has done like 60 different movies, and he generally works with um, Hans Zimmer. He also recently composed the score for It. And I think the writer for these two movies, Gary Doberman, is that his name? He wrote the screenplay for It, too, didn't he? So we saw people have worked together many times. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Annabelle and Annabelle Creation are the second and fourth installments in the Conjuring universe, respectively. In the interest of avoiding confusion, we'll be covering the films in order of events rather than when, like, the films came out, since Annabelle Creation, uh, a prequel, came after Annabelle, of course. Also a prequel. And without further ado, this is Annabelle. This is our new orphanage. It's as big as a castle. Feel free to use the house as you see fit. Mrs. Mullins and I stay down here. Your rooms are upstairs. Locked. And it stays that way. It's not mine. It's not. Go back inside and call an ambulance right now. Go! I like your dog. 
You survived. You don't come out the other side of something like this weaker. What is there left to be scared of? This is the last of them. How did that get in there? I swear, I threw it out. Things must have got mixed up. There, she fits right in. Sometimes demons can attach themselves to objects. What do I do? Protect your family. The doll's storied history begins in 1943, with its creation at the hands of doll maker Samuel Mullins, played by Anthony LaPaglia. Did I get that right? LaPaglia, yeah, something like that. The doll is one of a line of limited editions, presumably the first of which he gives to his daughter Annabelle. He and his wife Esther, played by Miranda Otto, cherish their daughter, whom they call Bee. However, they are stricken by grief when she is tragically killed in a car accident. Racked with grief, Samuel and Esther pray to whatever entity would reunite them with their daughter. After hearing sounds of their daughter playing and laughing throughout the house, they receive handwritten notes asking them permission for the entity to enter Annabelle's doll in order to be with them forever, and they grant permission. Once this occurs, they're heartened by seeing some apparitions of Annabelle. However, they begin to realize that this is not, in fact, their daughter, but a demon. Once this realization was made, the demon attacks Esther, permanently disfiguring her. Panicked, they recruit priests to help them trap the doll in their deceased daughter's closet, where they cover the walls with pages from the Bible, bless the room with prayer and holy water, and lock the door. For the next 12 years, they have peace. Disfigured peace. <laughs> In 1955, the Mullins opened their doors to six girls left homeless after the closing of their orphanage, and the nun, Sister Charlotte, played by Stephanie Sigmund, who is their guardian. The girls begin to explore their new home, but one orphan, Janice, played by Talitha Bateman, cannot join in because she has been semi-crippled by polio. Janice is thrilled to learn that she can live with the other girls with the aid of a motorized stairlift, which Mullins had installed for his disabled wife, Esther, now living downstairs. Once upstairs, Janice finds a locked room, which Samuel had purposefully locked without explanation, with the expectation that it will never be entered. Yet, that night, she's enticed by handwritten notes to go into the room and come in after the door seemingly unlocks itself. Once inside, Janice finds the late Annabelle's bedroom, immaculately decorated with dolls and an impressively ornate dollhouse. In the dollhouse, she finds a hidden key that opens a closet in the room, plastered with Bible pages, along with the doll given to Annabelle by her father. Strange events begin to befall the girls, with Janice being the main target. During a confession, Janice tells Sister Charlotte of her entry to the Forbidden Room. Sister Charlotte chastises her for breaking the rules, and yet she goes in again later that night. She encounters what she assumes is the spirit of Annabelle, and asks exactly what she wants. The spirit reveals itself to be a demon, and exclaims that it wants her soul. Attempting to escape downstairs, Janice is pulled into the air by the demon and then dropped to the first floor, seriously injuring her and confining her to a wheelchair. Later, while left alone outside, Janice is pushed into a tool shed where she is attacked by the demon who successfully possesses her. Janice's best friend, Linda, starts to notice changes in her and confides to Samuel that Janice had found the doll in the forbidden room. 
Inside, Samuel tries to exorcise the demon, but is brutally murdered. Linda tries to dispose of the doll down a well, but is almost pulled in herself, presumably to do battle with Samara from the ring. <laughs> She's saved by Sister Charlotte, who then barges into Esther's room demanding answers. A disfigured Esther tells Charlotte the story of how the doll became a vessel for the demon after the death of their daughter Annabelle. Later, after Esther is killed and crucified by the demon, Sister Charlotte attempts to get the girls away from the house. As Janice tries to kill Linda with a knife, Sister Charlotte intervenes and Janice is locked into the closet with the doll. When the police search the closet, they find only the doll in a hole in the wall that Janice Shawshank threw to escape. <laughs> Janice, now living under the name Annabelle, makes her way to an orphanage, where she's adopted by Pete and Sharon Higgins. In late 1960s Los Angeles, the Higgins' new neighbors, John, played by Ward Horton, and Mia, played by Annabelle Wallace, are preparing themselves for tough times. John's medical residency and the birth of their first child. Mia is an avid doll collector, choosing to decorate the baby's room with sort of terrifying dolls, and John decides he should get her the most terrifying one as a gift. <laughs> that night, Mia is awoken by sounds of distress from the Higgins' home next door. While John investigates, a young woman and her male companion attack Mia. The young female attacker kills herself by slitting her throat while holding Mia's new doll. <laughs> what a creepy bitch. <laughs> Cult members. The police inform John and Mia that their attacker was none other than the Higgins' estranged adopted daughter, Annabelle, now a member of a satanic cult. Later, several odd happenings befall Mia, who has been placed on bed rest due to potential complications with her pregnancy from the attack. At Mia's request, John tosses the doll into the trash. After the trauma of a mysterious kitchen fire causes the early birth of their daughter, Leah, the couple relocate to Pasadena to start a new life. There, they find the doll in their packed boxes, and Mia, trying to put the past behind her, places it on the shelves with her collection. Mia's attempts at a new life are thwarted at every turn. She meets some creepy children who predict her daughter's death through a series of drawings. She also befriends a local bookstore owner, Evelyn, played by Alfre Woodard, who is mourning the loss of her own adult daughter. Later, during a storm, she is attacked and stalked by a demonic entity in the building's basement. After turning to Evelyn for help and learning that the demon wants a pure soul, presumably their newborn daughters, John and Mia contact their priest, Father Perez, played by Tony Amendola, who comes to the apartment and takes the doll with him. When he attempts to bring the doll into his church, he's violently flung from the door and hospitalized. The doll seemingly vanishes from the scene. After awakening at the hospital where John is a resident, Father Perez informs John that Leah cannot be the target because she can't give her soul freely as an infant. John, realizing his wife is in danger as the true target, rushes home. Meanwhile, Mia and Evelyn are attacked by the demon and baby Leah is seemingly abducted. Given no other choice and resolved to save her daughter, Mia climbs onto a window ledge, willing to commit suicide and offer her soul to the demon in order to save her daughter. She is stopped by her husband, but Evelyn takes the opportunity to keep mother and daughter together, throwing herself out the window with the doll, falling to her death. Leah reappears in her crib, and the family is reunited. Looking down upon Evelyn's body on the street, the doll has once again mysteriously vanished. Months later, a woman enters a resale shop and fawns over a doll sitting on the shelf. She tells the shop owner that she wants to buy it as a gift for her daughter, a nurse, and the story continues. The end. <clears throat> Is that what had happened? That's what had happened. 
that's a lot. <laughs> that is. And I'm sorry, guys. That's a long synopsis. But we're doing two movies. Two whole movies. Two and entire movies. Thankfully, we're here to unpack both of them for you one by one. Well, uh, Annabelle received generally negative reviews from critics, including a score of only like 30% on Rotten Tomatoes. But it made $254 million against a budget of only $6.5 million, which is like 40 times its budget. That's impressive. I yeah. know. And a lot of that was done overseas. I think in America it made something like $82 million. But yeah. And uh, Annabelle Creation was actually much better received with the Rotten Tomatoes score of like 70%, making over $300 million at the box office against a budget of $15 million. So only 20 times, but only 20 times is a huge amount in the movie industry. Well, and for um, our movie especially. What's interesting to me is that even though I've heard different things from different people that they really like Annabelle or they don't like Creation as much as it's been reviewed, audience scores seem to have mirrored the the critical reviews like for Annabelle is 36% liking it and 68% for Annabelle creation, which is pretty close to their reviewed um, the reviews from critics. Um, when I first heard about this film, it was recommended to me by Penelope Ta-da! who did you saw it in the theater, right? I did. What did you think of it when you first came out? Did you have high hopes? Well, as a fan of the conjuring universe and the general like direction, I think, I guess that that particular film series was going in, I was cautiously optimistic. But as a spinoff, I wasn't sure that they were going to actually like nail it, but it looked promising. So of course, I go down to the theater for the very last late night showing. So I see it, I am thrilled with the with the outcome. And then of course, I'm then walking home in the darkest of night at 1 a.m. Oh, good Lord. Feeling like something's following me all the way home. Right after so some I feel cult like, members showed up in a movie, right? So I mean, right, on. right. So it just, I feel like it succeeded where so many times you leave a theater after seeing a horror movie and you're like, eh. But that one got me. And that's rare as a fan of horror. Yeah. Well, I think too, like the opening of The Conjuring is so amazing in its atmosphere and um because i mean you i didn't see that coming honestly you you know what the conjuring is about that family being haunted and they start with annabelle and it sort of floored me i was like oh my god like this is so crazy this haunted doll yeah it's basically acts as the prologue to introduce the warrens exactly before the main storyline and there was just so much promise in that intro and so, like, when I found out they were making an Annabelle movie, I was like, well, this has got to be perfect because that was such a perfect intro to that movie. I yeah, agree. it was a really effective opener. And so I had that half, like, knee-jerk, oh, my God, it's a stupid spinoff. But at the same time, I was also kind of looking forward to it because it was such an effective intro. But then I heard that James Wan himself would not be directing it. Yeah. So I was a little disappointed there. But it ended up being a great a great movie. Um you know, not the greatest uh, might might actually end up being a classic just because it's it's probably just the definitive doll movie at this point. Uh, Annabelle more than even, you know, Annabelle creation, at least in modern times, at least this century. I mean, come on. Chucky's not going to compete with this. Well, I mean, Chucky's still making movies, you know. Is so, he? Yeah. He just had one that came out last year. Uh, what? So, yeah. Cult of that? Chucky. Oh, wow. I mean, uh, the first time that I saw Annabelle, I wasn't quite floored by the movie as much as I was the conjuring I had super high hopes for it and I think that was its downfall for me is because I was expecting magnificence and I mean it was just sort of middle middle ground uh, on a subsequent watch for this podcast recording I found that I liked it very much so it grows on you everyone 
Yeah. Well, I saw it. I've seen it twice now. I've only seen Annabelle Creation once, but I liked them both quite a lot. I would give them both probably uh, 3.75. Nice. Uh, It's not a Star Wars porn. Okay. (laughs) Um, I think that I like Annabelle more than I like Annabelle Creation. I mean, but I've only seen Annabelle Creation once at this point, and so I'm going to revisit it again in a couple years, and we'll see if my mind has changed. But uh, Annabelle Creation was nominated for a handful of awards. It was nominated for a Saturn Award for Best Horror Movie. It was nominated for an MTV Movie Award for Best Frightened Performance, which is uh, Talitha Bateman. Uh, The first Annabelle from 2014 was also nominated for a Saturn Award for Best Feature. Um, It was nominated for an MTV Movie Award performance by Annabelle Wallace, uh, who played Mia. And it was nominated for a People's Choice Award for Best Thriller. It didn't win any, but I mean, like, it's always good to be nominated, right? I wonder how much that that must have been on set with someone named Annabelle as the main actress in the movie and the doll as Annabelle and what they said on, on set, you know. Oh, yeah. I'm, I don't, I'm sure she just goes by Anna. I don't know. Annabelle. No, not you. The doll. <laughs> Annabelle, don't just lie there. <laughs> <laughs> the actress who played Annabelle uh, as a little girl in Annabelle Creation, Samara Lee, was actually named after Samara Morgan, the main antagonist from The Ring. Really? Like the real life, yeah, the actress who played Annabelle. Isn't that a nice fun fact? My God. Yeah. I was like young enough, obviously, that... Yeah, I was like, but who would name their child after an antagonist from a horror movie? I, I actually know somebody who did that. <gasps> oh, what? Samara. Oh, Samara. Oh, oh like, literally yeah, the same like way. for real. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, some people like waterlogs. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to make it fun, she had a water birth. Oh, oh God. Wow. Okay. <laughs> it's a little too on the nose, huh? <laughs> The actress who played Linda in Annabelle Creation, Lulu Wilson, was also the well an antagonist in Ouija or Origin of Evil, and she auditioned for Creation because she wanted to play a horror protagonist. Was she up for any awards? Because she was like the best friend. No, she wasn't. Just Talitha. But I mean, both those child actresses did a pretty good job, yeah. you know. And even the older uh, girls did a good job in that movie. They were under that that sheet, like, telling ghost stories and whatnot. I mean, it was a pretty believable, scary moment. So, I think I feel like we have to talk about the doll itself, right? Like, what do you guys think about the doll itself that was used in both these movies? And obviously in The Conjuring for the start. I struggle to think as to whether there could be a creepier looking doll. I feel like they had to have like they say they they use the same doll from The Conjuring, but I feel like they I or you know, I read somewhere or something where they had like six different dolls with progressively evil fa- like more evil faces. When you because can tell it gets that dirtier too, yeah. and it gets mm-hmm. like more sinister the eyebrows kind of change a little bit. You know, like the lip color gets more and more black. Like all this stuff just like, kind of subtly changes over the course of the I'd movie. I'd really like to see like a side by side photo comparison of the different shots of the doll's face. Well, yeah, and when he first like um, created her, she she looked merely terrifying and not like, you know, like <laughs> merely not terrifying. She was merely terrifying and not nightmare fuel. <laughs> well, let's just ask. I mean, are you guys afraid of dolls in general? If you see one, are you like scared of it? Uh, I don't I don't think so, although it's ironic because we had Raggedy Ann and Andy as kids from the original um, Warren Files. It's a Raggedy Ann doll. It's not a porcelain doll. It's a Raggedy Ann doll. And I'm glad I didn't know that as a kid. That's all I have to say. Uh, well, to answer your question, like, no, I'm not like I'm not one who's just like 
weirded out by dolls. And I know that there are people who like legit are and who if they went into a room that they were staying in and there were dolls, I would probably turn them the other direction or ask if they could be removed. I've been with people who have behaved that way. That being said, I was also the kid that totally believed that their dolls came to life when they left for school that day and that they could move around and, you know. Oh, so you really love Toy Story? Is it like... Toy Story was way after that, but yeah. I mean, I mean now, I mean, you can look back and just be like, this is how I felt as a kid. I, I wouldn't know because I've never actually seen any of the Toy Stories, but oh, sure. Oh, don't, because you're going to like cry and cry and cry for days. So, yeah, no, uh, I mean, and there were times like in the middle of the night that I would creep myself out looking up at like this shelf that was above my window that had like all these dolls on mm-hmm. it. And I'd be like... Did they move? But, you know, I mean, that's usually, like, after I'd already been creeped out by something else, and then your mind gets, like, all overactive. Yeah, I feel like it's fairly common to see, like, an action figure or a stuffed animal or a doll or something in the corner of your room when you're trying to get to sleep and you see the shadows move or something. You know, and then something attacks you, and naturally you're going to be afraid of them from then on. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Did something traumatic happen to you? I have a good friend who is just, she's terrified of anything that's doll-related or like ventriloquist dummies or anything like that. Oh my God, I had the best ventriloquist story. It was really weird. Do you remember this in Pittsburgh? I think I called you. I went to this dollar store, and there was this guy walking through the aisles with a ventriloquist dummy on his arm, like having conversation. <laughs> Not even <laughs> not lying this happened and i was like trying to like get a picture because i was like what weird universe did i just (laughs) slip into but no that really happened and i was totally weirded out by that everybody else was just like what the h is going on yeah well that's actually a really good point because i wonder i was wondering like what's the origin of the creepy doll right and i looked back and and I, I looked at the of course it's a whole trope, right? Creepy dolls. Yeah. But the origin is really with the ventriloquist dummies. As far back as I look, the, with the um, 1929's The Great Gabo, to be followed by Dead of Night and the and the Devil Doll, and like the 50s and 60s, these movies came out, uh, and they got like progressively more and more like horrific. The earliest mention or showing that I can find for like a traditional child's doll was actually based off of Mattel's Chatty Cathy that came out in like 1959. And uh, it was an episode of The Twilight, Twilight Zone. Zone. Like Talkie Tina or something like yeah, that? Talkie yeah, Talkie Tina from uh, The Twilight Zone. And it was an episode called The Living Doll, and it was uh, obviously inspired by Chatty Cathy. But the doll was given to a young girl by her mother. Uh, the doll's innocent vocabulary uh, takes a sinister tone, especially about her stepdad, I guess. And um, uh, the girl's mother from the episode is actually named Annabelle. <laughs> no shit. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, there's really only a couple places that Annabelle like, came from. And this, and that was a direct, obviously, this is a direct influence, the Twilight Zones with the mother being Annabelle and the, the talking doll. Uh, although Annabelle doesn't really talk. No, but that that doll did. She says things like, I'm going to kill you or I hate you. I mean, there's a whole Simpsons thing that riffs on that, too. So, I mean, it's crazy famous. So, yeah. It's essentially the Twilight Zone and the Manson killings and Rosemary's Baby that this movie comes from. It's true. When I was watching Annabelle Creation, the first thing that popped into my head is that this is like Annie, a horror story. <laughs> this is like like the, the horror version of Annie you didn't know you wanted. And I was just waiting for this group of like orphan girls to bust into this house and run all over and then just start singing It's a Hard Knock Life. It's a fucked up doll for us. <laughs> it's a fucked up doll for us. <laughs> <laughs> 
when they're going around that house and exploring everything, I mean, it, this movie immediately makes you feel like pangs of sorrow and connection to its main character, right? Mm-hmm. Because she can't go out and be with the other girls. And I mean, you really start to feel for her like right away. And I think it's important for horror movies to create a character like that, um, especially because we so oftentimes don't care about the people who are in these movies. And I mean, if, if bad things befall them, you know, we just don't give a shit. But if it's a bunch of orphan girls, especially one who's like semi crippled by polio, you know, like you immediately zero in on them and you, you feel something for their group. And she even mentions that she's like the weakest or whatever. And um, the nun or whatever says, you know, no, it's not about your physical weakness or whatever. You're just as strong as the rest of us in faith. But it turns out that didn't matter. The girl was right. She is the weakest. She's the low hanging fruit and the mm-hmm. demon's going to eat her. She go for that one first. Yeah. Or you mean barfing her mouth? Well, really barfing her mouth. Yeah, that's correct. That was gross. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the same. Hey, they're consistent in this universe, right? In the conjuring uh, Bathsheba possesses, who is, I guess now an inhuman spirit possesses uh, the mother in the conjuring by barfing into her mouth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's the thing in this universe, I guess you can get, you can get your souls in two different ways. You can get the people to kill themselves or you can possess them and have them ritualistly kill people for you. <laughs> Straight up. Fire. Thing in their mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> in like a nasty tool shed too. I mean, not only are in this gross bug infested place, but someone's going to vomit in your mouth. I was mm-hmm. like, that's terrible. Oh, God, that was not sanitary. <laughs> <laughs> well, Annabelle creation um, obviously goes back in time a little bit and it's a period film, just like most of, well, all pretty much all of the conjuring universe films mm-hmm. to a certain degree. And um, there weren't as many like anachronisms in this film that there was an Annabelle, like for, for some reason for me, Annabelle felt more modern. Like they make some weird mistakes with, with the time. Like they're using. No, it's true. That movie is supposed to take place in the sixties, but it doesn't look especially sixties. No, it doesn't. And maybe they didn't go over the top and I'm used to people going over the top with it. Like what your stereotype people would look like in the sixties or seventies or whatever. But I mean, they had the cars and stuff like that, but they're using plastic bags for her like IV drip. Yeah. And here we are back at Annabelle again. But I guess it's the more interesting film to talk about. But creation. It did a better job creating a set as far as like a time period goes, I think, because they have those old looking trucks. Right. And it's in a farmhouse and it's sort of set away. And you sort of even feel that it's even older than the 1940s in a way, you know. Yeah, I was trying to age it. And I was I was actually mentioning to Penelope while we were watching it last night. I was like, I think this, this has to be this can't be anything earlier than the late 30s and it ended up being like the mid 40s or early 40s because it was 12 years later supposed to take place in 1955 oh was it really that late after that oh yeah you're right because i guess the daughter's been dead for like what 10 or 12 years or something yeah and they had peace and that's why they're like oh we can invite all these girls in let's bring more girls back into our house yeah uh he must have been some fantastic doll maker because in the movie we see him make one doll but yet they have like cars and food and a house and a motorized chair going up the stairs. You know what I mean? And you never see him do any other work. Well, <laughs> well, there when was we that didn't... church scene where they were like, "We're we've got like all this demand for your stuff. When is it going to be due? And they say, come by and get it. Everything's done. Oh, so, that's true, yeah. I mean, it implies that, yeah, I mean, they are sought after and that there is a market for that and mm-hmm. that they sell out every time. And obviously they were popular enough that in the next film, Annabelle, they're like, oh, how did you find it? Like, this is something that people look for, mm-hmm. right? So it's a limited edition and he's he's obviously a famous 
doll maker. Right. And he's presumably shipping all over the world or at least all over the country. You know, so it kind of it tries to establish that, but it has to very, very quickly move on. Yeah, you're right. And they actually don't show him giving the doll to his daughter. And you, it shows like the first edition of the Annabelle doll. Right. Um, but it actually doesn't show him like giving it to her. And later on, you have to kind of piece that together that he Do gave her the first edition. Photo. I felt like we missed a scene there. You know, that maybe she should have actually been holding it when she got run over or something. But I think they wanted to establish that it was the parents' invitation of the demon, not her death itself, that caused this whole thing to happen. Yeah, I mean, because her Annabelle's death in the in the start of the movie is really just a tragic accident, you know, which could have been avoided, honestly, because his, his, her mom is like, oh, there's a car coming, right? And, you know, and that's another thing. I think it's another call out to like Pet Cemetery right there because oh, it dies yeah. the exact same Gage, way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how fast were cars going in the 40s? I mean, like, I, did they go like 10 miles an hour? At least know. 40. At least 40 miles an hour. It goes with decades. <laughs> but, I mean, I did, like, gasp and, like, clutch my pearls when that moment happened because I was just like, I mean, I knew, obviously, the daughter had to die eventually. I just didn't expect to get hit by a car, like, right in front of me. So I was like, oh! And usually it's behind <laughs> some bushes or you hear, like, the, the the noise. You see the reaction of the parents' faces as it happens. But you actually see it, like, contact her and then it cuts. Right. Like, it's just before she, you know, presumably flies off into chunky salsa. Oh. But... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that girl's toast. Like she wouldn't survive. You know, you understand that she instantly died from that. When all the girls show up and she finally makes her way into that room at night and she sees that, that big dollhouse, right. And the lights come on. And I mean, like that room is just incredibly creepy. I can't imagine a child like spending so much time. I think in that. Oh, I that like, room was awesome. Well, yeah, but I think that was like my biggest problem with the entire film is that these girls kept on doing these things. And I'm, you know, that, that classic horror when you're like, no, girl, get away from that. You know, yeah. it's just like, how do you not know that this is like the precursor to. Well, you have to you have to assume that these girls don't know they're in a horror movie. I mean, certainly they probably hadn't even seen a horror movie, you know, in their, in their vintage. But I, I think that um, the room is exactly as it should be. I thought it was great. If it had been lit brightly, it would look great and cheerful, you know. Um, in fact, you see it lit brightly when in the in the prologue when she's kind of showing the mom playing the stupid song or whatever the hell. Oh, you are my soundtrack. sunshine. Yeah, 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 you are my sunshine. Yeah. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. That's something that all these Conjuring movies do is the soundtrack dissonance with some creepy ass cheerful song, you know, that goes right along with the creepy child thing. Well, it's always some old song too, because even in Insidious, which is another Blumhouse oh, one thing, where it's that, that tiptoe that, through the tulips. Oh, yeah. God, I hate that song. Tiptoe through the tulips. That's quite enough. <laughs> <laughs> I <just> can't. <laughs> yeah. It scares me. Yeah. Tiny Tim or whatever. Creepy. What was, who's the guy that does that? Tiny Tim. Yeah. Is it Tiny Tim? Yes. Yeah. Oh, how depressing. That's creepy in and of itself. Um, right? God bless us, everyone. <laughs> uh, but when you find a, a key and you figure out that it opens a closet door plastered with Bible verses and a creepy doll sitting well, in there. Well, I love how I they mean, showed it because the, the dollhouse that she finds the key in is the ex- closet. Is exactly yeah. the same layout. So she knows where she is in position of the room. And they really shot that with visual storytelling. Like they didn't explain it at all, but you knew you understood. Mm-hmm. And she looks over to the, she sees she got the key out of the closet in the dollhouse in the in the girl's bedroom. And she looks over the closet and she's like, it doesn't even look like there's a door there. She has to find the keyhole. Uh, now, I can't remember. Did 
Did the doll come out of the closet on that first visit, or was it the time when her friend was in the room with her that the doll finally came out? It w- The doll didn't come out, but the door, like, she decided that that door needed to be closed. She closed it, and then it reopened, and so then she closed it again and locked it, and it reopened. So you already know, like, whatever was there is now free- freely roaming. I mean, she did, like, throw a sheet over it, right? And the sheet, like, came yep, out. Yeah, the sheet came back. Oh, yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah, that was that same time. Because here's my thing with Annabelle, okay? I <laughs> I like... I like my dolls to, to walk and talk and kill people and have a nice crass charm about them. <laughs> and every time I think that I'm just about to get that like doll payoff with Annabelle, that it's going to start moving on its own, it's always nothing under the sheet or whatever. You know what I mean? And so I'm just like always waiting to see that doll like actually move on its own. And e- even when you actually see a doll like levitate in these movies, they always like somehow show the demon behind it. So you know it's never the doll that's actually moving. It's just something. Yeah, it, even right? when. And um, was it Lydia that was underneath the stairs when she was doing hide and seek? Right. And she looks, or Linda. 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 And she looks behind her or whatever. And Annabelle's, that's where Annabelle's been hiding since it escaped the bedroom. Mm -hmm. So you never see Annabelle move, but you see that it has moved, which I think actually increases the the horror. Uh, And it goes right back into my favorite trip, which is the whole nothing is scarier. It's what you don't see. It's that you have to piece together that this thing has moved on its own or has been moved by whatever, you know? that is using it as a vessel and you can see, which apparently a lot of people didn't know uh, is that you can see the demon behind it uh, and his eyes shining behind the, the doll and under the stairs. I didn't see that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh. Gotta have HDR man. Shit. <laughs> I think one of the best, the, one of the best moments in this movie for me and one of the scariest moments was when they um, encounter the, the scarecrow. Even just for the first time when it's just sitting there on its yeah. own, right? And not not even toward the end of the movie where the scarecrow might like come to life, right? Mm-hmm. I just like the thought of that scarecrow creeps me out a little more than the doll does on its own. And I don't know if it's like a like I mean, I don't like clowns and maybe it's a little too clown like, but well, even hell, the doll has a little clown-like look to it because it's sort of a white face and rosy-cheeked and whatnot. So I mean, yeah. it's just like creepy all around. This movie does a good job with atmosphere. Mm-hmm. One thing I like about it, it is kind of a slow burn, but it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you don't have to basically convince anyone that something's happening because by the time you want to, they're they're either already are or they're about to be convinced. And so by the end of this film, everyone's on board. And like Annabelle, it kind of has a bittersweet ending and that your main character, the main antagonist, at least at the beginning of the film and through the, a good chunk of the middle, is not possessed. And she has polio, you know, and she's been crippled and she's the one that's been really sought after by the demon and really basically um, harassed by it, like epically. And she has to essentially be possessed the rest of her life. And like that's she goes off and escapes and that's her fate. Her fate is you piece it together that she's Annabelle or whatever that that's the mm-hmm. beginning of the Annabelle film. And the cycle continues again. And that's this whole time, you know, she's been basically a puppet of a demon for decades. And it's just kind of it's the bittersweet because everyone else survives, including the only black character the only it's funny yeah the only black character in this film survives and uh and annabelle the only black character in the film dies so it's a opposite yeah of her own volition that's true she killed herself 
Uh, as far as like actual filmmaking, this movie, I, this movie tried a little harder than the first one. I think as far as like its camera work goes, there's lots of sweeping motions, like up the farmhouse and down the well. And I mean, that's, it's not exactly great filmmaking. It's just like flashy, but then they also do these like time-lapse sequences where it's like day to night. And so like CGI oriented. Right. But I mean, they, they push the story along with that, I suppose. Yeah. The only time it was really jarring was at the beginning of the movie for me where the, 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 the camera went over the church really quickly and went to the mm. people's like, what was the point of that? IMAX theaters. It was like, oh, this is too slow. The scene's too slow. So instead of cutting, we're going to zoom it forward, fast forward and make everyone dizzy. It's like, what? But the rest of the film, I didn't really notice much camera work besides what you just mentioned about like the time of day changing and things like that. But I think everything else serves the movie. And there was an excellent cinematography to the film as far as the portrayal of like darkness and and like they, they got some like pretty brightly lit rooms to look natural with just black hole doors mm-hmm. where anything could be standing on the other side of. And they really use that in the storytelling as far as what were they going to show? What were they going to have come out of it? Because there's a lot of that nothing is scarier trope where you're waiting for something to happen. And that's almost scarier than what does happen. Well, yeah, I mean, this movie does a lot of ratchet as far as tension goes, right? So it's always ratcheting up. And when you get to the end of it, they really go for, like, the big, like, shocky horror scares, right? So you see, like, Anthony Paglia holding that cross and his fingers getting broken. Oh, my demon, gosh. And that was, like, one of the most disturbing scenes for me because he's literally... Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking, like, in Conjuring 2, like, Vera or whatever is able to... Uh, hold up a crucifix and talk Latin and say, you know, and hold off the nuns. You know, Valak is a demon, you know, a different demon, but she's a demon. And she doesn't break all of her fingers holding a crucifix. So I was like, why didn't Valak do that? She'd still be alive today. Well, you have to remember there's a difference between these characters too, right? So Mr. Yeah. Mullins is of a different background and different faith and different space in his life where he's obviously like been – desperate enough to stop relying on God and rely on something else. And it's not really sure whether or not his faith has been restored or, you know, where he is. And I think the the point of, of that scene, but I mean, throughout the Conjuring universe and particularly in the Annabelle movies, I think, and we discussed this a little bit, they really drive home that nothing is safe and, you know, nothing is sacred thing. You know, if you can like, possess a priest, you know, if you can, if you can have power on church grounds, you know, there is no real safe space and there is like a real um, danger to thinking that something will save you or putting your faith in the wrong thing. Well, that's exactly right, because I think, I mean, the, the two major deaths that we see in Annabelle creation are the parents. Yep. And both of them are killed in sort of a religious iconography sort of way. Yeah. And it's karmic payoff because they're the ones that brought the demon into the world. Right. Now, I did not expect in Annabelle Creation to see a crucified bisected woman on a wall. So, I mean, like that was, I mean, quite shocking to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I do feel, and especially like last night when we were rewatching it and I was looking at that, I, I was just, and this is one of my chief criticisms of Annabelle Creation. And part of the reason that I like the first Annabelle better is because I feel like they really pushed that over the top, like, um, you know, with with gore and just like with the demon's power that he held mm-hmm. over over the people, he was able to be so much more dynamic, be so much, you know, all places at all times. And it just it felt like oh, oh it almost took away from the horror and the fact that it was just too much 
too pervasive. Yeah, I feel like there's real power and subtlety, like you were saying in the in the you know silent. Some yeah, some of the best horror in this film is like the waiting for it to happen, or the subtle horror, like she takes the picture off the wall and she brings it into her bedroom. She passes under the shadow, and every time she passes that picture into the shadow, the eyes of Annabelle glow like like a demon eyes, and it's it was such a good effect, and it creeped me out, and. A lot of the more subtle stuff, just like um, seeing something move or the shadows in the background or, you know, having that doorway filled with darkness and not knowing what's there. They did a lot of good stuff there and they played with light really, really well in this film. And then they just go balls to the wall. Unfortunately, I appreciate both. And I, I, I hate to be the one of us to actually agree with the critics and stuff um, that I actually I really like this film and I don't have that many complaints over it. Um I, I probably like it slightly better than Annabelle in a way, but I'm I know I'm alone between the three of us in that assumption. So I usually like to be a little bit more of a what is it? I don't Words know. are fun. Negative Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> uh I, I have no problems with gore. I mean, because I mean I like horror movies. But there's a time and a place, and subtlety is good. Unfortunately, a lot of times, like subtlety is lost on mass audience, right? And if you want to make a lot of money, you have to do something like that. But if you're going to have that kind of a death, where someone is crucified to a wall, cut in half, it better be a character that I somewhat feel something for. I didn't care about the mom. We didn't see her at I all. Cared about her. She was a mystery for most of it. And if you're going to do something that's crazy horrific, and you want to get some sort of like you know gut reaction from it do it from a character that you've already come to like. And I think we like the father more than we like the mom in this movie. That's actually one thing I really liked about this film is because you knew that the mom was a, like a good person. You you kind of got that from the first few, like the prologue and you get that later, but the demon still used the, the girl's fear of, of her, even though it was irrational. They'd never actually seen her. They knew that she kind of wore a mask and everything else. And they uh, they still were afraid. And that's like one of the best, uh, I think the best things they do in the movie is when they're under the sheet or whatever and they see the, the thing moving behind the sheet and then you see the mask all of a sudden. And it's one of the best gags. I mean, I jumped, so I... I can't I can't fault them for that that style of filmmaking. They, they totally got me. I think this movie, I mean, I like the way that it, it moves slowly. It's a slow burn and it wraps itself up like super, super fast. Yeah, like once, once shit really hits the fan, it's like done. Yeah, right? it has to. It got what it wanted yeah. for the most part. It was trying to to get extra. It was trying to get dessert. But at the end of the day, that's all it needed was a soul. And it moved on and it got more. And I mean, I like how at least like Annabelle is really like traced throughout all these movies, like in, in conjuring too. And I like how these movies connect them. It really, it bridges between one and the other. Right. So we get to see the characters from the first Annabelle at the end of Annabelle creation, right. Leads straight into it. And I don't know if that's like, I mean, cause we probably could have picked that up on our own. Really. It didn't have to be like, so in your face, but at least for people who are picking up Annabelle creation for the first time and not seeing Annabelle, it's a, it's a, great bridge and a good bridge for us to move into Annabelle itself. Right. That's true. So me and Penelope like Annabelle, the first one better, right? And you say you liked Annabelle creation better, Chris, is that uh, if not equal okay. for different reasons? All right. I feel like one is much more of like a family study and like almost a Spielberg style where it's like, Hey, we're making a movie about an evil doll, but you know what? Actually don't look over here because we're actually making it about this, mm-hmm. you know, very kind of poltergeist in that way. Uh, Annabelle Creation is much more of a straight uh, forward horror uh, for horror's sake. 
versus Annabelle has more under the layers, I would say. And I'm I'm all for a, a really well done, technically well done, uh, but shallow horror film like Annabelle Creation. I mean, it's not that shallow. There's a but, well in it. But <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Hello, Samara. But there's a, I feel like there's a lot more shout outs to film in the films that, and the influences that came before it in Annabelle. And the like I, like we said earlier, that is the Manson killings. Um, that was the whole like satanic cults are taking over America back in the 70s vibe. And it's also a lot of it from Rosemary's Baby. Well, I think, too, I mean, like, I think Annabelle on its own feeds into a lot of basic fears that people have. Things like, you know, outlandish religious cults, right? Mm-hmm. Or, like, change in things, especially when it comes to, like, like hippies and things like that at that time period. Or, like, change in life, uh, being pregnant, becoming a parent, you know, mm-hmm. all those things. And it is newlywedism i mean if that's an actual word but at the same time you can say that but it's like they they had they wrote down a list of plot points they wanted to have in order to make the connections they wanted to because like the people that were killed next door right which is annabelle's you know adopted parents or whatever one of them's named sharon which is in reference to of course sharon tate who was killed in the infamous you know manson killings sharon tate was eight months pregnant at the time of her murder there's uh, Rosemary's Baby. They're named uh, Mia and John after the two main actors from Rosemary's Baby, Mia yeah. Farrow and John Casavetes. And of course, Sharon Tate was also the wife of Roman Polanski, who directed, who directed Rosemary's, Rosemary's Baby. Baby. I yeah, mean, I it's just all <laughs> it goes on and on and on. Well, and then like when they move to Pasadena and they get into that apartment building, right? I mean, that's just like classic Rosemary's Baby, too, because it's not even just the story itself or the characters. The building itself is kind of evil. Apparently, right? Ellen DeGeneres uh, lived there and she was like, it was just as creepy when I lived there. And that's what she that's where she lived when she first moved to California. Is that true? Really? Yeah. Yes. Oh Ellen DeGeneres lived in. The, and she said, I think that she lived in that unit. But well, who, now I want to go and like stay there for a night. Yeah. Uh, there's another like true crime story. This guy named Jeffrey McDonald was uh, an army doctor in the 60s. And he woke up one night and said that a group of like crazy hippies had invaded his house, killed his pregnant wife and all his kids. And he was, you know, sort of stabbed in just such a way that he survived. Right. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that he like created the entire story. He killed his family. And just blamed it on these hippies, right? And so the first time that I saw Annabelle, it's the first thing that popped into my head. Not even just Charles Manson. It sounds a lot like that Halloween murder thing with the pixie sticks, where the guy blamed it on people poisoning his children, but he did it himself. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when I saw that, when, when these guys came into their house, the, the daughter and her, her boyfriend or whatever, I was just like, oh, it's Jeffrey McDonald. And they had just talked about Charles Manson on the news that night, right? Right before they walked in the door. So I can't quite pinpoint why I had such a hard time with Annabelle the first time I watched it. But maybe having this conversation, that's just it. Because the entire time it's right there in your face, right? So Well, I went in with knowing the bad reviews and stuff, and I thought my sister was insane for telling me to go watch this film with it being so low in ratings and everything. And I was like, it's a spinoff. It's gotten low ratings. It's a doll. I don't care. But I had such low expectations when I saw it. It was just that much better than, you know, just watching it. So I actually had a really good time the first time I watched it, and I actually recommended it um, to people. And I enjoyed it the second time I watched it. So... I liked it so much better the second time. I had, I mean, I was like, I was actually talking at the TV, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I rarely ever do that. So I was really into it this time. And so it was much better. Uh, I, 
some of the lines that I wrote down in my notes were like, cause like I kept saying crazy people do crazy things. Mm-hmm. Right. And I yeah, was just like, it was repeated several times. <laughs> right. And I was just like, well, uh, you know, what does that mean? Is he just talking about these people or is it just crazy people do crazy things like stand on a window ledge and try to kill themselves? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, and also it's very ableist. Right. Well, but I was impressed with the whole movie and like animal creation has great cinematography. It uses light and dark. I mean, there's really good tension buildup moments. And at the same time, there was like one particular scene that I felt like that was like kind of rose above the others, which is like the basement and elevator scenes. Oh my God, it's fantastic. And of course, come to find out that uh, elevator scene is actually directed by James, James Wan himself. Wan. And of course, then I'm looking at my notes when I'm researching, apparently she pushed the sixth floor and tried to go to the sixth floor three times. So she's actually literally typing in the marker the B666 and she's trying to get up. So that was just a little detail that I loved. I want to go back to something when we were talking about uh, the, the set piece in this movie. Because as much as Annabelle creation looks more like a, a period piece, mm-hmm. We've already discussed that Annabelle itself, to me, does not. They throw in a car and a couple old-looking like antique appliances, and that's just not quite enough. I just like the movie itself looks, like you said, so modern. Well, they did though. Like the sewing machine was IKEA. Like, and IKEA wasn't even there till like fifteen years later. You know, there's like there's a lot of different things. Well, and then like did. she, there's at one point she shows up in a dress, right? And it looks like they just went down to dress barn and picked out an outfit and stuck a big bow on the front of her. Like, oh, that's sixties, you know? Just like, yeah, but you know, this was done for like no money. That's true. Strangely, and you know what? They did fine enough, but I did notice that there seemed to be a lot of anachronisms, you know, problems with the timeline and and things like that. So, but you know, it's that's a minor, that's a nitpick at this point because that's not really. I feel like the time here is more coincidental or incidental rather to the story because it could almost happen any time. You know? Well, I mean, so The Conjuring takes place in the seventies, and it definitely had to take place before that, right? So they just stuck it in there. James Wan's done another puppet or, sorry, doll movie before, right? Yeah. Dead Silence. Dead Silence. What did you think of that? Uh, I've only seen Dead Silence once. I watched it in the theater when it came out, and I wasn't super impressed. But people keep telling me that they love it, and so I'm going to have to go back and watch it again. It's good. Um, You know, it does have its creepy moments. It kind of falls apart in a couple areas, especially at the end, Uh, although there's a twist. But what's funny about that is, like, uh, (laughs) it it shows when they're unpacking the the box for Annabelle at the beginning of this. Uh They show a little logo for Raven's Fair, which is actually the town in Dead Silence. Is it really? Yeah. So he's calling back to not only other people's better films, but to his own shittier films. <laughs> he's just wow. creating his own universe. <laughs> well, I don't think Dead Silence is in his universe. I don't think Insidious is in this universe. I think it's just Conjuring, Conjuring 2, The Nun, Annabelle, Annabelle Creation. I'm sure that some person on the internet has found a way to like piece it all together or something. I mean, they certainly look That's what similar. people on the internet do, though. Piece things together. Piece James Wan. Well, you know, together. if American Horror Story can have the same actors playing different characters in the same universe, then I'm sure the Conjuring universe can do the same because, of course, that one actor is in Conjuring and Insidious as one of the main actors. Oh yeah, what's his name? That Patrick Wilson. Patrick mm-hmm. Wilson. Yep. What? How does this Penelope? How does this compare? You're the, like the historian among us. How does this movie compare with the actual files from the Warrens? So. It doesn't. I mean, I mean, it loosely based on actual events, but like the story for Annabelle is completely made up. Like none of that. Oh, so it's actually from the the prologue from that, Conjuring is what happened, not that's correct. the movie Annabelle. That's correct. All of this, all of this, um, Annabelle, Annabelle creation is completely made up. It has no no actual foundation in 
what, you know, the the Warrens actually experienced. And you actually read their files, didn't you? So when I see something, not just horror, but see something that really intrigues me, I generally try to do a little bit more research and try to see if there's anything written. I'm a big book nerd. So um, I went to the library. Um, No, I didn't. I I went to Amazon, (laughs) which is like the modern day equivalent of the library, right? And I bought the book, The Demonologist, which discusses some of the cases, some of the cases that Ed and Lorraine Warren worked on um, in a very positive light. Um, They obviously have their critics and they have a chapter or he has a chapter on Annabelle. And I also bought a very short story published by someone who took classes with the Warrens for 99 cents. It's the actual transcription of the interview that she had with Ed Warren about Annabelle. And it's almost word for word, the same uh, material that's in the chapter that's written, you know, in uh, The Demonologist. Interesting. Yeah. And then the information on their website, again, almost word for word, the same thing. The official story is that there were two nursing students, one of which received uh, the doll as a gift, again, Raggedy Ann doll, as a gift, as a birthday gift. And the first thing that happened is that they noticed that the doll would change positions. Mm. And so they would start very um, carefully positioning it. And when they came home, noting that it had uncrossed its arms or it had crossed its legs or it was in a different position than how they had left it. And then they started noticing that it would appear in different rooms. So they would leave it on, she would leave it on her bed and when they came home, it would be on the couch. Um, right? Yeah. And um, I think what really got me, this one particular bit, and if you've ever had a Raggedy Ann doll, you kind of know this. Like, there's not a whole lot of dexterity in the limbs. Like, you can cross the arms, you can cross the legs, but you're not going to really get it to bend and stay that way. No, they just fall, fall down. Exactly. So this is the thing. One day, they came home, and she was in a kneeling position. <laughs> Right? What? <laughs> they said that they they said that they tried to recreate it and they couldn't. Yeah, because if you try and bend the legs, they snap back into play. It's just filled that's with exactly stuff. it. So that I think was one of the things that I was like, ooh, that's creepy. Got goosebumps thinking about that one. And then when they realized that things weren't right, like they were receiving the written notes. That's um, and it was uh, the bit about the notes was that it was written on parchment paper and on, by pencil, and they neither had parchment paper or pencils in their apartment. How does that even happen? No idea, dude. Um, I was like, who didn't have pencils in the 70s? Well, I have parchment now. Right? (laughs) So, and then they came home one day and there was blood on the doll. And one of their male friends had some dreams where reoccurring nightmares um, that involved the doll. And then one time he had an out-of-body experience where he watched the doll strangle him in his sleep. Woke up. Um, from that out of breath and of course you know terrified oh my god was the doll on him no no, he was actually in a different location which is even more creepy so then I think they had a experience where they heard noises in one of the nurses rooms and they thought that the apartment had actually been broken into and so he went to go investigate by himself because that's what men do, right? <laughs> um, Not me. <laughs> and so he goes to investigate and he sees, he flicks on the light, 
doesn't see anybody room in the room, but the Raggedy Ann doll is crumpled in a corner. So he feels a presence behind him. He turns around to look. There's nothing there. And that's when something happens, which he's not willing to discuss, but he ends up with um, claw marks on his chest. And he's his shirt's cut open and he's bleeding. And that's when they call for religious help. Because at that point they realize that there's something going on that they can't deny. Did they call for religious help or did they call the Warrens immediately? Or no. did the religious help help call the Warrens? That's exactly it. So they called a priest that they knew and talked to him and he was receptive and admitted that he didn't have any answers for them. And so he called another priest and told the story to the priest and said, I don't really know what's happening here. Um, and then that priest reached out to the Warrens and the Warrens immediately went to the house because they acknowledged that this has progressed to a point where you're beyond like the infestation stage of encounters with demons and that the next stage was going to be possession, essentially. And um, that's when you, you really get into the danger of like physical injury and harm and death. And they, they really did truly believe that if they hadn't intervened when they did, that one, if not all of them, would, would have died. See, and that's, that's like creepy and fascinating. And I almost wish that I would have seen that as a movie. At the same time, it's like there's some inconsistency too, right? Because at the beginning of Conjuring, they just basically take the doll and lock it up in a glass cabinet. Nothing happens. But in Annabelle, the priest tries to take it and he basically gets thrown across the freaking street and his head cracked open when he just tries to enter a church. Maybe that's the difference. Well, I mean, their little museum they have there is not yeah. holy ground, right? So It isn't, but there's a story to that too. So the the, the Warrens actually removed the doll from, from the apartment, the nurse's apartment. And the, the story, the car driving with the priest, that's actually based on the Warrens' experience leaving with the doll. So they felt that their lives were imperiled with the doll as they were removing it from oh, the Oh, so like their, their radio was changing and stuff? or um, They had mechanical issues with their car. Um, they experienced uh, the power steering went out, the brakes went out, they were having difficulty. He said that he would have thought if he had encountered himself on the road that he was driving drunk. Is that he was having real difficulty manipulating the car. And that he actually had to stop and douse the doll with holy water and make signs of the cross three different times before it stopped and they were able to arrive at their home safely. Now, the best part about this is that once they actually get to their home, the doll levitates and the doll starts moving around their home so they would put it in his office and they'd come home and it would be sitting in his chair like you know and so finally what they do is they bring in priests and shaman and they bless and bind the doll several times and put it into this special case and the case every piece of the case has been blessed and every like it's it's prayed over and and bound in this case on a regular basis now even that still with all those precautions several people have come into contact with the doll at the museum um like do they break in or like no no um you you can go you can tour this museum yeah Yeah, but you can't touch the doll no well they advise you not to touch the case but i know i've heard one of these stories i think you're going to tell yeah so one of the stories is the young man who showed up at the museum with his girlfriend and um, tried to provoke the doll, so he's banging on the case. He says, "You can, you can scratch people. I want to be scratched." 
you know, and that's when Ed Warren had to physically remove this young man from the museum, told him that he thought he should leave, got on his motorcycle on the way home with his girlfriend. They lose control over the motorcycle. Again, the mechanical issues with the car, vehicle, whatever. And they, they hit a tree or impact in some way, and he is instantaneously killed. She is out of commission for a period of time. And so when she awakens and she talks about it, she said that it was that they had been making fun of the doll prior to the crash and that he had lost control over the motorcycle due to mechanical issues, but that he had actually been picked up from the motorcycle and rammed into the tree. Un- unnatural movement um, that she didn't think could be explained by, by the crash itself. So there's that, which gives me goosebumps thinking about, but also on a couple of different occasions, people who were skeptical, um, including a priest, and um, a detective, I believe, had encountered the doll as like, as part of like visiting the Warrens and on different matters, church matters for a, an exorcism, I believe, and referral for one of the cases that they'd been working on for like satanic cult issue or something mm. in New England. And on each of these occasions, the priest, for example, picked up the doll, said, you're just a doll, you can't do anything, you have no power, which is a provocation. And the priest had Again, mechanical issues on his drive home and end up totaling his car was lucky to be alive. People should just walk home after this. Right? <laughs> yeah, just to, hopefully you don't have a pacemaker. Or just yeah. ask the warrants if they have a horse or so something. the I detective mean, was left alone in his study and Ed Warren warned him not to touch anything. You know, don't touch anything. These are these are relics of the, all these materials have come into some kind of like satanic use. Don't touch anything. And he leaves, he comes back, the detective leaps out of his downstairs office and refuses to step foot in their house ever again. Anytime Ed Warren met with him had to be like far away from his home. And he would never say what happened, only that the doll is real, it moved. So, be that what it is, that's what I know about the the real animal. I love it. <laughs> that, yeah, that sounds like almost like an episodic kind of thing, you know, like or a, a bunch of shorts or something to show. And I, th- I feel like they did do some shorts and stuff for Annabelle. Uh, there's like a list in some of the research that I did that, of things they did, either web series or little shorts that they've done. I think it was like promotional material for creation. Yeah, or I was just like wondering that, if yeah. they'd done anything like that because, but apparently they're going to show some things like that because there's going to be several sequels. There's going to be an Annabelle 3, there's going to be a Conjuring 3. And there's going to be that thing from the Conjuring Two, Crooked Man. Crooked Man. The Crooked Man is awesome. But the Conjuring Three, right, is supposed to be like almost a Cabin in the Woods style. You know, here's all the artifacts coming. Oh, it's Annabelle Three. It was Annabelle Three. Yeah, so they they're Conjuring Three. They're describing Annabelle Three as like uh, Night at the Museum meets the Conjuring. (laughs) So essentially, Annabelle is like. Uh, sparking all the other objects in the museum to come to life. So whatever demonic positions are behind these objects, she's bringing them out. And I think that some of the stuff that you talk about in those stories is probably going to be in this movie, where people coming to visit the doll at the museum, and you'll see what happens to them afterward. And quite frankly, I mean, like this is the this is kind of the Annabelle movie that I would like to see. I want to see what what, what that doll does at this particular place, because both these stories are origin stories, right? Can we just have an Annabelle movie that's not where she came from? That's just like she's just there already. So. Yeah, or one that we actually get to see her move. We do hear her move in uh, one of these, and you see her her head's like 
facing and staring at them. But I kind of like that idea of not seeing her like you know that she has moved and you can hear well, I her think, move. I, I mean, so at the end of The Conjuring, when they're through with the, the, the Perones, right, and they go back to their house because their daughter is in trouble and they think that Annabelle's the one doing it, doesn't she walk into a room and someone's holding the doll and the doll's head turns to look at their daughter? I think it's like an old woman holding it or something like oh, that. interesting. Yeah, but the doll's head actually turns to look at the daughter. So we, we get to see the doll move. I mean, there's some sort of payoff, but not in the Annabelle movies. It's in the Conjuring movies. But that was the... Because what we see in these movies again and again and again is the demons that prey on what you're already afraid of. And I feel like the little girl was already afraid of Annabelle and the nun, the demon nun, is the thing that scared her with that. I don't think she was actually waking up Annabelle's demon because those are two different demons. Yeah. I don't know. And and also, it's like, what was the goal of this, of Annabelle in the Warren, the actual Warren files? Because if its goal was to get a soul, like that's also feeds into that bittersweet ending of Annabelle where Alfre Woodard's character jumps out the window to sacrifice herself. I just have a hard time believing that her soul was taken by the demon if she was told by God or whatever that wasn't her time that she had purpose. I don't think anyone's purpose is to get their soul taken by a demon to save someone else. So presumably what her act uh, at the end of the film protected the the family from the demon, but also presumably she went on to heaven to be with her daughter. I don't, I don't know. Well, you kind of see but, that a little bit in like the Constantine film, you know, where at the very end where Satan comes to collect him, right? He's the one the act soul. Of sacrifice. Yes. It's the act of sacrifice and they counteracts that. And I think that that's like sort of a trope in and of itself. It is, you know, and we haven't mentioned yet. Another thing that doesn't make sense. The biggest plot hole in this whole thing is how did the neighbors, like we get how Annabelle, you know, or, as we know her, Janice, that became Annabelle, the adopted right. child of the Higgins, right? Mm-hmm. And she came back to kill them, you know, because family member, satanic, whatever. But how the hell does the neighbors have Annabelle the doll? Like, they're not connected at all. How random is that? Like, this, like, infinitely small chance of that happening, that he happened upon that doll. So my theory was that Annabelle had tracked down the doll on her own or had gotten her step-parents or whatever adopted parents to find the doll for her. And then the father next door, who was looking for his wife who's obsessed with creepy dolls, asks or mentions it to the neighbors, the Higgins, and they're like, oh, she's looking for this creepy, the creepiest doll of all time, <laughs> essentially. And uh, they're like, so oh, we have one. We have the Our daughter's grown up and she ran away. Here, take this one. And so that's where he might have found it. But that's the only thing I can think of as to why... She would have come back home and then walked right next door and, hey, there's the doll from my child who I got possessed by. Like, Well, I don't think – I don't. when they were making Annabelle and she came over and she was holding the doll and cut her – That was throat, supposed to be the origin, right? Yeah, I don't think that they yeah. were planning on making Annabelle creations. So, they, I mean, you, you have it's a, kind a of whole sloppily there, tied together. Yeah, they're just trying to make this other film after that. Because we have a movie that you make for $6 million – and it like makes a shit ton of money. You're going to make another one. And so they just did another creation story. So, I mean, yeah. there's no need to address that hole, really. And then if at the end of Annabelle Creation, when we see Mia and John again, too, it's like it, does, it really doesn't matter. It's just full circle anyway. But back to my question, was that the, the demon's whole goal was to, pos- or to get a soul or possess a soul? So according to the Warrens, that's always the demon's goal is possession so i think that's a really great question and i don't really have an answer for you right i mean is the is the goal to for the demon to possess 
And what what does that mean exactly? Or is it collection? Like, you know, is is their job to collect and pass on, you know, the soul or to acquire? Well, in the conjuring universe, there's two ways to do that, right? Right. And I'm saying that I don't really know if there's a really like definitive answer. Well, I think we all we have to go on is the Warrens told her like the next step would have been possession. So it wanted to possess a human. And who knows what it would have done? Obviously, murder, probably. But at the same time, like that actually lines up with what's in the Conjuring universe as far as what demons are trying to do. They can either try to get you to kill yourself willingly, give a soul willingly, um, or you can get possessed and then they will start ritualistically killing. And which, you know, is what Bathsheba did in the Conjuring uh, way back in the 1800s, if we really wanted to start there. And uh, that's when she was killing her. She killed her own kid for Satan or whatever. She offered up her child's, you know, so they, that there's like several ways to do that. And I think that's fairly consistent with the Warren files say about what Annabelle or the doll, the Raggedy Ann doll was trying to do. Well, I don't think that possession is the same thing as like collecting a soul. Cause I think they say in Annabelle, cause that priest says, that's what I'm saying. Like with, you, you have to, you have to give your soul. You can't just take it. If you're going to say something like the, you can't take the baby soul cause the baby can't give it, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, killing, you can kill anyone you the want to. The next step would be to either get the mom to kill herself or to possess the mom and then kill the baby ritualistically yeah. to offer it to Satan. That's yeah. what it's trying to do. It has multiple avenues. It's quite crafty. Thankfully, the baby didn't die because that would have been terrible. Although there was that scene where you think she killed it. Like, because it, oh, right. it makes it look like, there, it makes it look the, like the doll. <laughs> and she's like banging the doll against the... You know, because it's the doll in the bed instead of the baby. And so she starts banging it and she throws it on the ground and you and it becomes the baby. I know. And you're like, holy crap, she just killed her baby. Like, that's all the demon would have had to do. But apparently that was against the rules because it just turned out to be like nothing or just it was a different. It was the other. It was the second creepiest doll in the movie. Oh, that's right. That the, the blonde one. girl, yeah, the blonde yeah. doll, whatever. I think we need to go back and talk about Alfre Woodard for just a minute because oh, yes. isn't she a national treasure? She is a national treasure. My God. Every time I see her in a movie, I'm just like, she calms me. I don't know if it's her face or her vocal tone or something, but she can deliver a monologue and I will just sit there and just like bask in it. She does. She has that. She's like the female Morgan Freeman. For <laughs> I would like to see her talk about penguins. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> But uh, my first uh, my first dealing with with her was in Star Trek First Contact. That was the first time I've ever seen her. And I've seen her in billions of things since. She was in one where it was like aliens taking people. And she's been in like Luke Cage for Marvel. She's been in a bunch of stuff. I saw a movie with her when I was a kid called Heart and Souls. It has Robert Downey Jr. in it where um, like all these people die in a bus crash when he's born. And so all their spirits are around him and she's one of them. And she's just so delightful in that movie. I, I couldn't have been more than like, I don't know, 10 when I saw it. So, I mean, she's she's fantastic. She's been she's in awesome. a lot, and I love her every time. Um, something else that drives me crazy in Annabelle is that the mom's name is Mia and the daughter's name is Leah. And every time they said those two in the same sentence, I wanted to like rip my ears off. Yeah. <laughs> I'd do it. You don't have any dolls in your house, do you, Chris? Jeepers Creepers. <laughs> Where'd you get those fucking peepers? <laughs> How do you guys feel about mustard and pickles? I uh, think that yum. sounded great. As soon as the preg- the preggers lady opened up the p- jar of pickles and she's like, you know what would go great with this? And he pulls out a jar of mayonnaise. I was like, oh my gosh, that would be great. Not mayo. Mustard. I said mustard. You just said mayo. Well, I meant mustard. You're right. Damn right you did. Yeah. I think you'll are nasty. <sighs> it looked good. Everyone I likes totally a pickle. I totally want to try that. 
No, not for me. I like pickles. I like mustard, but not together. Well, Penelope goes a little bit further than I do. She likes peanut butter and pickle sandwiches. Do you really? I do. I mean, I'll try anything once, but... Oh, you have to. It's an uh, awesome combination. It's okay. the best. I'll take that over the uh, peanut butter and mayonnaise sandwich. Oh, oh, stop. Which You're literally me. is a thing, and I've tasted it, and it's gross. That just sounds nasty, too. <laughs> it, oh, it's gag. nasty. It really is. <laughs> it turns your stomach and curdles your insides. I can't Oh, my stop. God. Okay, so we have some questions. Um, obviously... Annabelle and Annabelle creation are horror movies. So what supernatural are we th- horror, one of my favorites. So what, are we, what, what makes these horror movies? Obviously, the supernatural element. Yeah, and they have just a billion horror tropes in them. You know, so many, and it's they're all actually done very well. Uh, some there's some things that that, that have been done better before or more originally, but uh, I don't think that it's. I don't feel like these are B movies. I don't feel like they're cheaply done or like no one cared. I feel like the people that wrote and directed and made these films really thought they were trying to do something special. And I felt and like on some levels they did. Well, they look and, great uh, for sure. Yeah. I think they were done by people who actually appreciate the, the genre and who actually wanted to do it respectfully. Well, and you've also got James Wan behind it, producing and helping write and everything else because it's his baby. It's his universe. And he's constructed you know, right now we've got DC and Marvel universes, but if no one remembers that, hey, guess what? We've got a Conjuring universe right now, and it's uh, it's great. Well, and there's tons of horror universes I mean, throughout, you know, the, the genre of horror. There's been lots of like... Yeah, the Hammer films right. and Universal and, and I mean, things like, like that. Things like Ryan Elm Street and things like They've created their own universes. Yeah. So it's entirely possible. I think one of my favorite things when trying to decide, you know, what makes a good horror movie good is some of its reverence to past horror movies. And I think that Annabelle, especially the first one, has a lot of that. We see like things of Rosemary's Baby, obviously. We see some Amityville horror in there. And I mean, it's just a ton of like reverence and callbacks to all these movies. Mm -hmm. Were y'all scared in it? I was really creeped. Like, I don't really... I think when the first time I saw Annabelle, I was creeped out by especially that basement and elevator scene. That's what creeped me out during the whole movie. And then the second uh, Annabelle creation, I was creeped out multiple times throughout the movie. Uh, but especially when the children were alone, especially when it, like the footprints like followed her to the bed and it was under <laughs> the bunk bed. And she had to look down and she saw Annabelle and then the hands going over Annabelle's face and moving mm-hmm. the thing. Like there was so many cool like kind of subtle moments where it only showed you a little bit. But it was so effective because it really utilized that nothing is scarier trope. And I love it. Well, I think that they do that. I mean, as horror fans, they really understand and hearken back to the things that really terrified us as kids. You know, and the things that get me particularly, they did really well in, in these films. That unnatural movement, that disjointed movement when, uh, the, when the mother comes in, uh, when Mrs. Mullins comes in and sees Annabelle at, at the tea table and then she... Yeah, it kind of took it to another level too because you saw that in The Ring before and, and uh, The Grudge and a little bit in Gothica, like that disjointed movement. But in this time, she, her limbs actually grew in length and everything yeah. too. Yeah, it was crazy. just like... Ugh. Yeah, and uh, you're absolutely right. Like the things that terrified me as a child, like that bunk bed scene. Oh, yeah, because when you're on the top bunk and like you hear something in the night, you're absolutely terrified that that thing is going to come up the sides at you. And Yeah, and you're like on an island of danger, basically, on that bunk bed. Yeah. Even a regular bed. If it's if there's a way to get underneath it, yeah. there's a way to come out. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think, feel like they did that really well. And then the one scene in Annabelle where the, the doll like is lifted and you start to see that there's something behind it. I felt like that scene, like I almost 
and this is one of my criticisms of horror in general, when they show like a little bit too much, I was almost mad at it for showing a little bit too much of the demon, but I'm not. See, one of my favorite ones is like in the mirror. Like she's like looking at Annabelle that one of the early on when they had just raised the demon or gotten the demon to the doll, they start to see those apparitions and they're heartened by it. And then she sees like Annabelle looking in the mirror or she sees Annabelle and she's like smiling. And then she sees her in the mirror and it's the demon oh that was creepy yeah like in the like the bathtub or whatever it was or something and it's like the same size and shape it's just you see what it really is and that's when she starts to realize uh that's not my daughter Uh, the first time i watched annabelle the first annabelle I, i wasn't scared but on this second viewing that basement scene really got to me and it wasn't quite the basement scene itself it's when she's on those stairs and it's completely dark and oh, it's yeah. coming oh, up the stairs yeah, at her hear it coming quickly. like that was another like pearl clutching moment and mm-hmm. i've seen this movie before and i was like what the fuck is going on i'm just <laughs> like my god yeah so i mean oh, what's your opinion uh, of those drawings that were fl- floating down from the you know showing like the first one i thought might have been done by those stupid neighbor kids you know where it's showing like her and the kid and her baby but then you, sh- the ones that were floating down, you know, that were falling on the steps in front of her, were I mean, showing we the never baby see those kids again, getting run we? over Are by a car. Are they even real? That's what I said. I don't know. I thought they were real. I think I mean, they were I, real, and they after, were just, I think that I think those were just like just another part of the demon, and they but the were, demon has not done anything like outside of the nun, which we still don't know. We uh, like it does no peaceful, friendly, or even adorable. You know, but that's not the point here. It is the the end goal is to terrify, right? Because it right. feeds off the fear. So is it is that setup going to lead to increased fear? If the answer is yes, then well, I think she was creeped out by the the kid, like not mm-hmm. accepting her or whatever. But I think the demon used that. I think the kids are real, and that first drawing might have been real. But I think it it added on top of that because it also turned off all of the lights and everything. And then she like looks back, and everything was all, always on, like. It's all part of like you never know in these films quite what is a physical attack and what is a mental attack or is it a little bit of both? Well, it's just like when she's talking about the neighbors above them fighting. Were there actual neighbors fighting or was it the demon crawling back and forth the entire time? Because she had pinpointed it, right? She's like right there. There's where she walks out. And then at the end of the movie, right there, that's where the demon's right above you trying to get your ass. So, I mean, (laughs) yeah. I, who knows? Those kids could have been real. They could have been fake. Either way, it scared her. That's true. So it could go either way. It forced her outside to Alfrey. And that, yeah, and poor, poor Alfrey. I know. That's okay. She'll be back in another movie. Mm. Uh, most importantly, we have two movies here, and we got to pick one. Who's the hottest guy in these movies? I'm going to have to say John. Yeah, it's an easy pick. <laughs> there was just, it's kind of slim pickings here. I don't know. I mean, like, Anthony Paglia has grown into a nice looking man. And I remember him from things like Innocent Blood and other horror movies. And he was, he was pretty fine back in his heyday. So, I mean, even as an older guy, I still like him. And John's like, he's real, he's classically beautiful, right? But he's also a misspoken asshole. Like, he's not, he's not the best husband half the time. So I want to go straight with Anthony Paglia. Well, I don't know because they they did that trope of the the you know the super supernatural proof dad right, which pol- we've seen in Poltergeist. We've seen a lot of the time. If the dad the dad has to get the proof, he has to see the science. He's not going to be a believer in this hokey pokey you know stuff or whatever it's called. And uh, they they played around with that a little bit, but there is a moment in Annabelle where everyone's on board. 
at, you know, and even him. And it doesn't get to a point where she's just like going insane from him, not believing her, you know? Oh, it's at not least even he's that. trying I just to think, like, at, at the beginning of the movie, he, he really is kind of a jerk husband. Cause he's like, he's super involved in his residency and she's feeling neglected as a pregnant wife or whatever. I mean, and as as hot as he looks, he's all like, she's like, what were you talking about? Your residency or your being a dad or whatever, you know? And he's like both. I don't, <laughs> at least who cares? Honest. I'm hot. It yeah. doesn't matter what I say. Yeah. What, what would you agree, Penelope? I agree that there are slim pickings. There's not like a whole lot of like male not a lot characters of in, this movie. Yeah, in the movies, period. Yeah. Mm. Well, maybe the demon, the demon male. How about that scarecrow? Oh, Ooh. no. Christ, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> Never the scarecrow. No. Never the scarecrow. I like my light bulbs unturned and on. <laughs> And I will never be in that filthy ass vomity tool shed. So you can just keep it. <laughs> <laughs> With all those doll legs hanging down from the ceiling. That's pretty awesome. Well, I think that we have beat these movies sufficiently enough that they're going to act like a rag doll themselves and Wait. just lie there at this point, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, Penelope, we had a lot of fun with you tonight. Thank you for being here. And uh, thank you for suggesting Annabelle. I'm glad I got to watch it again and I'm hoping to watch Annabelle Creation again. I'm going to give it a couple years and see if it grows on me a little bit more, I think. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to the Annabelle sequel that's coming out in 2019 or 2020. Mm-hmm. So, thank you. I will continue to watch as many of these movies as they put out. I'll tell you what, as soon as Annabelle 3 comes out, let's uh, let's con- let's reconvene and do this again. Joey? Mm-hmm. Sounds right. like a plan. Well, guys, thank you for listening, but we do have a few things that we want to bring up, like our Patreon bonus episodes. We've got a lot more stuff for you guys. We've got Hot Take for A Star is Born, and we did The Nun and Ghost Stories. We have our Brightest Flame Award for Best Actor coming up in November. We've got hours of bonus content, structured actual bonus episodes for you guys to listen to, and you can hear it all for just as little as $2. And that's at patreon.com slash thefilmflamer. Yep. Uh, and we were recently guests on Screen Queens, where horror gets gay. We had an episode during Patrick's uh, Potathon Countdown to Halloween, so check that episode out. And we were featured on an episode of What the Trope with John and Alicia, where we talk about Halloween and horror movie tropes. So yeah, we talk about the top 10 horror movie tropes of all time. Check that out. Also, we've got Top 10 Cursed Objects coming out this month, so check that out in a couple weeks. But that's not all. Let's look forward to next month, December, where we're starting the holiday season. And what better time to get into the holiday spirit than by watching the movie Krampus? What's Krampus? Krampus is the evil Santa. Oh, that sounds like fun. (laughs) Does he kill children? He beats them with reeds. This month, we really want to bring up another podcast that we've been listening to a lot lately. And this time, that is Friday the 13th. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Maddie. Do you like horror movies? I sure do. Well, did you know that most horror movies are inspired by real-life horror? Really? Like what? Well, take The Shining, for instance. That's based on Stephen King's real-life addictions. Or The Purge, which could be our country any minute now. Oh, and The Strangers, which is based on a real-life murder. People should be talking about these things. Hey, 
Guys. Oh, oh hey, Producer, producer Michael. Michael, hi. Oh, well, I hate to break it to you, but somebody already is. It's you. <gasps> That's right. We are Friday the 13th, the podcast where we talk about horror in real life and horror in media, all from an LGBTQ perspective. Because we gay, y'all. We are proud members of the Legion Podcast Network, and we can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Come along with us on this crazy journey, and as always, get slayed. Anyways, guys, check out Friday the 13th wherever you get your podcasts. They're great. These guys are great. They they talk about horror in real life, so it could be anything from politics or something that's going on in, in society. And then they pair that up with a horror movie. And in between that, they give you all kinds of recommendations on what they are watching and what you should watch or what you should avoid. Yeah. Check them out. Uh, you can find us on social media, uh, Facebook and Twitter at The Film Flamers. You can also find us at our website at filmflamers.com. If you can't do any of those things, you can email us. Chris, what's our email address? Tiredqueens at filmflamers.com. That's right. Anyway, guys, I'm getting tired. Rob's getting tired. Penelope's getting tired. We're We're all all tired tired. queens. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So until that. Sorry. I I wanted to contribute in some kind of meaningful way. Well, let's all say this together, shall we? So until next time. Sweet Sweet dreams. dreams. We all sound gay. (laughs) (laughs) We're learning.